The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I feel a little bit reluctant to speak um, because it's so nice to be just be be with you in the silence and um, it feels to me like there's a kind of I don't know if this is the right word but a kind of purity to experience when there's not a lot of instruction and coaching and talking and interpreting that we're just we're just allowed to um, be here and have the experience we're having and um, and I think that there's 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 something that's very um, true about that that comes out that's very um, close to what the Dharma is when we give ourselves this kind of permission that we're not forcing ourselves to feel a certain way um, to have a certain kind of experience but we're open we're here we're we're willing to um, be affected by our environment and we're, we're responding. And, and I think that takes a lot of trust to do that. You know, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what this mind is going to cook up, what kind of crazy thoughts are going <laughs> to, you know, um, we don't know what other people are going to do. Um, and so it takes a lot of trust, a lot of letting go, and I think even when it feels, or maybe especially when it feels like, you know, what's the payoff here? I'm you know, sitting and walking and doing this, but I don't feel that different. And I don't, you know, um, that something is, something is happening. Something, every time we have this intention to be mindful, to be aware, to meet our experience with kindness, um, something important is happening. Um, we may not... Is it, is, it, is it hard to hear? How's, how's that? Is that better? I'm also... Thank you, Sylvie. Um, just to repeat that last thought, that even when it feels like not much is happening... Much is happening. <laughs> we can trust that much is happening. And I was, um, as I was sitting um, with you, I was remembering this story that some of you may know, which, um, which is about the rainmaker. Do you know that one? Which is said to be Carl Jung's, one of Carl Jung's favorite, favorite stories. 
And I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but it's the, it, it goes something like this, that there was a town that was in a drought, a terrible drought, and there was no rain, and they did all these different things and ceremonies and consulted different um, wise people and healers, and, um, but they, uh, no rain, no rain was coming. And finally they heard about uh, a sage from a distant village who, um, who could, who could, um, who could, you know, they thought he could do something. So they invited him to come and, and he had this amazing reputation and they were very curious to see what he would do. Well, how, how could he, how could he make the rain come? So he got there and he looked around and he said, I need to a cabin out in the, in the woods um, you know, near the village, but out in the woods, I need to be in a cabin and secluded. Just leave me alone for three days. So they said, okay. So they arranged for him to go to a cabin. And, and, and so three days passed. And then these huge clouds, huge dark clouds came. And it started thundering and pouring rain. And the people were so happy. Finally, um, you know, the rain came. This, this guy did it. You know, so they, they ran over to his, his cabin and thanked him and said, how did you do it? How did you, how did you make the rain come? And he, and he said something like, oh, um, I didn't do anything. They said, well, really? What? what? You know, what do you mean? And, and he said, um, when I got here, I looked around and I saw that this place was so disordered and disheveled and discombobulated. And I could feel in myself that I was being impacted by this and, and, and was losing my sense of um, order. And so I realized I needed three days to sit and, and be quiet and restore a sense of order within me. And then by, by restoring that inner order, things could come back into harmony the way they're meant to be. And then the rains came naturally. So that's the rainmaker. <laughs> and, and as I was sitting with you, I sort of felt like something within me was being reordered. It wasn't like anything cosmic was happening, but it was like, yeah, little by little, something was settling, something was opening, something was allowed to flow. And, um, you know, I wasn't consciously working on any, any problems I have or any things I'm concerned about. But there were two, two little things in my mind that uh, were a little bit agitating for me. And I noticed on the lunch break, I thought about them and I thought, they're not a problem at all. <laughs> and, it, you know, there was just more space around it. It was, it was like, 
the more that that my own system could come back into balance, um, I was able to 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 yeah. It just felt like I could see the same problem in a new way. And, and it's interesting, you know, maybe interesting to reflect on, I wasn't trying to solve those problems. You know, when we sit, when we meditate, we're not trying to solve our problems. We're just, we're just present. We're just here. We're just allowing nature. You know, we're, we're allowing ourselves to be part of nature, return to nature. Um, but even though we're not trying to fix anything, um, sometimes things get fixed. Or th- um, it, you know, so this morning I was talking about the, um, the coin or the jewel that is um, what's lost in the river is found in the river. You know, and this idea that um, whatever it is that we think is missing, um, that we think is lost, is is found here. Is found is is found is found in the flow of our life as it is. And and to me, this is very close to the nature of insight. You know, um, so this, you know, our center here is called the Insight Meditation Center. So it's, you know, sometimes it's good to think about, you know, what is insight. Um, and I love this um, image of the, some of you might know this, it's in different flavors, but there's often it's a picture and it will look like a duck. You know, when you see the picture, it's like, you know, okay, and someone says, so this is a picture of a duck, but there's also a rabbit there. And you're like, really? And you kind of look, and I just see a duck, I see a duck, I see a duck, I see a duck, I see a duck. And it's like, oh, I see a rabbit, right? You know, the picture didn't change. The picture was always exactly the same, but something shifted. And we could see that when we look one way, it's a duck. When we look another way, it's a rabbit. You know, so maybe the nature of insight is a little bit like this. It doesn't depend on our life, you know, for us to change, for our life to change. But it depends on how we look. It depends on how we see. It depends on how we relate. Um, the duck and the rabbit are two ways of seeing the same thing. Form and emptiness are two ways of seeing, two ways of describing the same thing. From one perspective, it's form. From another perspective, it's emptiness. So, so, so the practice of insight is, in, it's a kind of radical thing to invite us to look again, to look again to look again, to be willing to keep looking and to trust that um, what we need is here. Mm -hmm. 
and so, so I like the story of the rainmaker who, you know, he said he didn't do anything, and that he, you know, that was that was honest, right? He was he was just um, willing willing to be there and willing to uh, come back into balance himself, and then things could shift. Um, I was also remembering the story. Um, I think it's in the book Crooked Cucumber, which is a biography of Suzuki Roshi, who was the founding teacher of San Francisco Zen Center. And I guess this was in the mid-60s um, that Suzuki Roshi, who's a Japanese monk, Zen monk, was invited to, to go to this uh, school in Santa Cruz and teach the children meditation. And it was kind of a small experimental school. And it was going to be a three-day meditation retreat. And he, so he got there, and he said he looked around, and he said, "The first thing we're going to do is clean the school from top to bottom." <laughs> and it sounds a little bit like a Japanese thing, and I think it is a very Japanese thing. And so they washed the floors, they washed the, you know, all the equipment. They um, they scrub, they, you know, they spent, so they spent one day of this three-day retreat just cleaning. And once they had organized everything and cleaned everything, he said, okay, now you're ready to meditate. You know, and this idea of, um, I appreciate this very much, this like, you know, to... Uh, like it's hard to um, it's hard to deal with something as subtle and as challenging as as our mind without having you know a kind of good foundation you know so I, I think there are places in the in the suttas where the buddha talks about before before you meditate to, to take a bath, to clean your body, to put on clean clothes, to, you know, there's something about being in order and being in harmony that supports an inner kind of peacefulness and an inner harmony. And, you know, of course, with the, with the understanding that the boundaries between inner and outer are a little bit arbitrary, right? Or a lot arbitrary. You know, our mind includes everything. And so when we clean our room, when we organize our life, um, when we um, take care of our sila, you know, sila is the Pali word for ethics and integrity. And this is considered the foundation for meditation. One, one of my meditation teachers in Burma, uh, Saida Upandita, used to say, if you feel that your meditation somehow has plateaued, you know, so you're kind of stuck in a way, um, you know, you kind of think he's going to say, well, you know, try breathing this way or, <laughs> you know, do this other technique. Or, and he said, check your sila, you know, check your ethics. You know, is there something, is, is there something there that can, um, that we can that we can look at and put back into order, put back into harm, 
harmony that will give us a better foundation. Um, one of my teachers was a, he took ordination as a monk in Burma and um, n- not, not kind of forever, but it was kind of, you know, to do a long retreat. And in it, at this time, he'd already been a meditation teacher, a Dharma teacher for many years, but he wanted to go back and practice with, I think it was with Pa Ok Saida, one, you know, one of the famous meditation masters. So he took robes with the idea that um, taking on the, the sort of monastic and ethical practices of a monk, or none in his case being a monk, would support his practice and support his meditation. So he took robes, and I think it was a six-month retreat that he was doing. And in about two or three weeks in, one of the senior monks came to him and said something like, um, you, you have violated one of the ethical rules. And the senior, it wasn't, the, the main teacher, but one of the other senior teachers would like to meet with you later this afternoon to talk about it. He was like, what? <laughs> and didn't know what he, what he had, what he had done. But just in, in, in being told that you had done something, he was going over in his mind and going over and going over and trying to, what, you know, what was it or what, where did I, you know, what did I do? And I'm forgetting exactly what it was, but it was a kind of, you know, I'm trying to remember if he took his food too soon before someone, but it was kind of, you know, a, what we might say a technicality. Something. But he said in that process of doing that, he like went over his sila with a fine tooth comb and then saw, oh my God, all these things that he felt, well, maybe that wasn't so good or so skillful or so this and that. And it was actually, he felt it was a very helpful exercise for him. And so not not that we're trying to encourage, you know, being self-critical or like that, but um, just to look at all the ways that we could support being in harmony, being, you know, um, and, and, and ethics and you know is part of that and is um, such an important foundation in the path. Um, There was, a, there was one other story that I wanted to, to share, or one other image. And it's, I'm trusting a little bit that it will be helpful because it was something that also came up for me during, while I was sitting. And it is the, some of you may know this, is that there's a Zen story. Well, a lot of the Zen stories involve oxes <laughs> or buffaloes. You know, you might've heard of the ox herding pictures which are like this picture of the, of the path of practice with these 10 
10 phases of practice. It's very beautiful. And so in, in, in Chinese and Japanese Buddhism, the ox stands for, um, or you could say it stands for a true nature, right? You know, and we don't tend to use language like true nature so much in the, in the um, Theravada or Vipassana. But there was a poem that we were, Gil and Diana and I were editing <laughs> to share. And it mentioned true nature. And then we said to Gil, what do, you th- what do you think about using true nature? And Gil said, well, change it to freedom. <laughs> so you can think, true nature or freedom. But the, the ox or the buffalo stands for, for freedom, let's say. And so this, this is a kind of um, uh, uh, koan, and it's about the buffalo in the, through the window. And it's very short, and, in the, and, and it says, um, the buffalo was passing through the window. His head went through, his horns, his body, his legs, all went through the window. But his tail (laughs) could not pass through the window. Why could his tail not pass through the window? (laughs) And... So how do you answer that? How do you respond? (laughs) Um, So Gil asked me, how would you answer that? And I said, well, I just wag my tail. (laughs) I'm so happy wagging my tail. I don't need to go through the window. Um, one One of the ways that sometimes Zen koans are practiced is not so much like there's something to be answered by our conscious mind, but there's something, I mean, you kind of, there's something to be experienced and you kind of share that experience. Um, but it's interesting, so this, so, so this, this is the, the koan, this is the question, the buffalo through the window. Why can't the buffalo's tail pass through? And it's, it's interesting to me to reflect on the fact that this was, at least by some one famous Zen teacher, Hakuin, considered this one of the most difficult koans. You know, it was in the collection of Nanto koans, which are the, the hardest koans for the student to pass. And you think, well, why? Why is this, you know, what does it mean and why is it so hard to pass? Um, You may have your, your, you know, your understanding of it, your interpretation of it. I'm interested to hear what you think. I'll, I'll, I'll just say, or I'll just suggest that um, the koan gives us a picture of um, that we can accomplish most of what we want to accomplish, but, there's, but not all of it, right? There's something that's left over. There's some remainder. And one of the ways I relate that to practice is that um, there's always going to be something in our practice that's out of our control. 
there's always going to be that tail <laughs> that we can't shove through the window and, you know, we can't... Um, that it, it points in a way to the limits of our ability to manage, to control, to figure out. Um, and it, it's wonderful to have goals in practice. It's wonderful to have, you know, we want to be more, maybe, more compassionate or more settled and more concentrated or more kind or um, have more freedom. Uh, and those are, those are good. Those are important. But um, how do we handle, how do we deal with that tale? How do we, after all these, maybe after all these years of practice, and I've, I'm so grateful to the, I mean, I, you know, I'm sit, talking about myself. After these years of practice, almost 20 years of practice, I feel so grateful to this practice. I, um, I feel transformed in many ways. But how do I deal with the fact that there are some aspects of me, my personality, my conditioning, my habits that maybe haven't changed so much, or that, is, that are there or that, that, that I'm still working with? Do I, do I, um, so, so I think, so what maybe this koan is suggesting is that each of us will need to deal with this. That there's, um, we all have a tail. (laughs) And so one way that we might relate to this is, well, I just need to keep practicing keep practicing and practice harder and practice longer. I just haven't done as enough retreat. I haven't, I haven't met the right teacher who really has it, who's going to enlighten me once and for all. Um, or I haven't sat with, you know, haven't practiced this technique or that technique or, you know, so it's like this endless cycle of self-improvement. You know, I can relate to that. And so just check it out. You know, it's, and it's a wonderful thing to see different teachers and it's a wonderful thing to sit long retreats. Um, so we can, we, can, we can relate to this. I just need to do more of the same, try harder. Another way of relating to it is to, well, I'll cut off the tail. <laughs> I'll cut off that part of myself, that my fear, my desire, my anger, um, because that's the problem. That's the reason I'm not fully on the other side, right? Um, I can relate to that as well. And I think what um, years of practice and, and, and some years of 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 sharing this practice with others and hearing from others about their practice, it has given me much more of a respect and appreciation for that tale. <laughs> so, much more respect and appreciation for our humanity, for our vulnerability, for um, the way that our boot work, you could say our Buddha nature, our freedom, is something that is not, it's, it can't be separated from our humanity. It can't be separated from our depend, dependency, from the impermanence, from the vulnerability of life. 
And the more we acknowledge that and, and um, uh, include that, include that understanding, then the tail goes from being this problem to actually, you know, I don't know if it's the solution, but in, in this koan, you know, there's these capping verses, these kind of little poems at the end. I don't remember what it says, but it says something like, the marvelous tale. <laughs> you know, oh, thank God for this marvelous tale. You know, that's kind of the feeling it is. That, that this practice is not about getting rid of our desires, getting rid of our humanity, getting rid of our need for others, our need for community, our need for connection. Um, and uh, then it's like we can celebrate the tail. Then the tail is, I know when my puppy, you know, when that tail goes and it just starts hitting me. <laughs> I know she's happy about something. <laughs> so, so to, you know, and so for, for a day of practice like today, we we may feel like some of us or all of us is, is, is maybe we see the window or we're, we're approaching the window or we're, we're trying to go through the window but we keep hitting the glass. <laughs> or maybe we feel like, well, I'm doing pretty well. I'm getting through. I'm calm and concentrated and peaceful and happy, but there's just that one problem. <laughs> you know, um, for me, what this story is saying is that to be um, very grateful for our problems, to be grateful for whatever we think is difficult, whatever we think is unfinished in ourselves, because for one thing, this is how we can connect to others. This is how we can relate to others. We don't relate to others um, through being uh, kind of perfect and complete and autonomous. We relate to others through our difficulties, through our pain, through our shared understanding. Oh, I know, I know what it feels like to have that kind of pain. Therefore, I can understand maybe a little bit of your, your pain and your suffering. So, um, yeah. And not to feel like somehow we have got it wrong or we're um, deficient if we have this, this remainder, this tale, that this is actually maybe um, something that's really important, really valuable, um, really marvelous, that um, opens our heart in a way, opens our heart to each other. And then, and then it's like this river of life is like this picture of the duck and the rabbit. Right? You know, it's like from one way we can look at this world and we can say this world has a lot of problems. This world has a lot of suffering. This world has a lot of needs. Um, and that's, that's very true. Um, 
and it doesn't negate that suffering at all to also be able to look at this world and see its perfection and see its beauty and see its um, exquisiteness, its loveliness. And that, you know, and to be able to hold both of these, um, I think is what, uh, you know, what this practice can offer. So, thank you very much. We have a few minutes if um, anyone would like to sh- have a you know, question or comment to share a little bit about your experience today. Um, please feel free. I was really interested in your comment on preparing for meditation, preparing to sit. Can you talk about that a little more? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I don't think there's any particular recipe, but um, more and more I have a kind of appreciation that Meditation, mindfulness, insight, awakening is not something that's a private experience. You know, I I think it's easy to feel like, yes, we're all in our inner world and we're all, and that practice is about changing our inner world to be, you know, to suffer less, you know. And that's a piece of it, but... um, Hopefully, our practice includes everything and everyone. And so if there's a way that, you know, we can tend to our environment, you know, whether it's our physical environment, you know, where we are, it's one of the nice things about, you know, being in a place like this, we get to take care of this place. We get to clean up and straighten up, you know, and we're, we're taking care of our hearts and our minds in the same way that we're, we're taking care of the building. So taking care of our physical environment, taking care of our, our bodies. Um, and um, yeah, in some way, it's considered very helpful for meditation not to be mentally agitated about ethical things. You know, if there's sort of something we can kind of complete or something that we can um, uh, tend to in terms of, of, of our ethical garden, you know, that, that will also support this process. And so, so I think for each of us, it you know, would look different. But just to have that sort of understanding that, oh, it's not just this inner private experience but it's something that's co-created. And I remember someone said that about Suzuki Roshi, he would come into the Zendo, the meditation hall, and he would go up to the altar and he would arrange the flowers, move the flowers around. And the person said, I realized that he was rearranging my mind. (laughs) You know, and 
you know, so there's, there's that, you know, that, that you know, we're, we're such open systems. Um, does that? Yeah, yeah. Linda? Yeah. Oh, you can just take the mic and, yeah, and then Anne, yeah. You want to put the mic closer? Yeah. Is it off the mic? Yes. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, my reading of texts from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Um, has uh, kind of ingrained in my mind that there, this might not be true, but it seems to me that there there are more stories of um, saints or <coughs> sages in the tri- in the Tibetan tradition who have committed grievous crimes and have gone on to become enlightened and I don't know if it's the same in the Vipassana tradition I don't I haven't read as many stories um, but even now just the news coming out from the Shambhala com- community and just yeah. even Suzu- Suzu- Suzuki Roshi um, just his past and, and which has <laughs> I, I'm not that familiar with his past, but I've I've seen articles and and I just wonder I don't know if you can say something about well if your ethical past isn't so clear or unburdened yeah. then how how do you go forward no, thank you it's a it's a great question and um and in the even in the theravada tradition you know there's a story of angulimala who was the who was a, basically a murderer who had had the fingers of you know 100 people and had around his as an as jewelry and um so what i would say is that and when I talk about you know having ethics and integrity as a foundation for meditation practice, it doesn't mean that only if you have an unblemished past, then you can meditate or then you can you know progress or something. And actually, one of the best ways to learn about ethics is to <laughs> you know make mistakes, right? You know how else do we? Learn. How else do we learn about the pain of um, acting out of outside of our integrity? And you know, um, it's unfortunate sometimes. You know, and and and. But but what I would say is that um, in terms of the 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 the, the dharmic understanding of ethics is that. It's not so important what happened in the past. I mean, it, 
But what's important is, is right now. And if we can make, you know, an, a commitment to um, be in integrity and be to the best of our ability to be ethical from now, that is what impacts our, our mind, our heart, our ethics. And in any moment, we can say from now, from now, you know, we can always start again. And so that, so it's, it's, it's worth reflecting that there are many, in this Buddhist tradition and all the schools, there are many stories of um, people who have, um, you know, done terrible things and then had some encounter, you know, the encounter with the Buddha or encounter with someone and practiced and were awakened, you know, and had full awakening. So we're not limited by our past. That's a really important, you know, like from now we can, you know, if we were limited by our past, there could be, there's no agency. There could be no waking up. We'd just be stuck, you know. So we're not limited by our past, um, but we, um, we also, um, even though we're not limited by the past, there are still consequences from the past. You know, so in the story of Angulimala, who was this serial killer, and then, um, and he had one more kill to get to a hundred, as the story goes, and he saw the Buddha. And, and, and the Buddha was walking, and he kept trying to go faster and faster and overtake the Buddha, but he could never seem to catch the Buddha. And then finally he screamed out, you know, you stop. And then the Buddha, you know, as the story goes, you know, at least in my mind, spun around (laughs) and said, um, I already stopped. You stop. You know, and in that encounter, it changed, it changed Angulimala's heart. And he became a monk and he got to, you know, full awakening. And then he was traveling around teaching um, so, you say, okay, so, so he got to full awakening, so he wasn't limited by his past. But then he got around, he went to all these places where, to teach to these villages where he had caused harm. And they would throw stones at him and attack him. And the Buddha was, said, well, you know, that's the karma of, of, of what you've done. So you have to kind of hold that as well. You know, so um, I like that because it's a, it's a balanced... You know, it's like we're not limited by our past. And the most important thing is if we learn from it. You know, and that's the idea. It's not about having guilt or shame, but it's about actually letting letting the pain of unskillful actions wake us up. And then it's actually, well, that can turn into something that's good. Um, does that mean that we're out of time? <laughs> You mentioned Shambhala, and you know this is an example of you know I, I don't know the whole story, but it seems like there hasn't you know I, I don't know how much there how much um, reckoning there has been with the unskillfulness 
you know, and I think that's that's part of the pain of this, that it hasn't really been looked at. Um, I'm not sure what you were referring to exactly about Suzuki Roshi. I know, um, I mean, the thing that came to my mind is that um, there was a tragedy in his family, and you know, his wife was his wife was um, killed by a mentally ill monk, and and he blamed him. Suzuki Roshi blamed himself because he he. Um, he insisted that that monk be allowed to stay at the temple, even though his family was not comfortable with that person. And then this terrible thing happened. And then, um, and Suzuki Roshi said to his children, um, please don't blame the monk, you know, please blame me. And then, you know, and then some years later when his children were, were kind of teenagers or a little bit older, he came to America, and I think his family had some um, misgivings about him leaving his responsibilities in the temple and his family to come to America and teach. So I, I don't know if that's what you're referring to, but yeah, that's you know. Um, and it's I so I've reflected. I wonder if part of what made him such an extraordinary, by all accounts, extraordinary person and teacher was that suffering that he that he went through and that you know, the pain of that, and maybe in some way wanting to start over. Um, but, yeah. Thank you. I'm, I must be confusing him with a different Roshi. <laughs> um, there, there are other there Roshis are... who have more checkered Okay, paths. Yeah, okay. Sure. <laughs> so, Anne, you, you want the mic? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you, yeah. Hi. Uh, before lunch, you said something about, uh, you know, continuing the focus, and you said uh, something, everything is sacred. So I, you said that. <laughs> Do you remember? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah okay. Uh, I started trying it out as, as a, a kind of a mantra, like just seeing things as sacred. And one thing it does, it makes things very equal. Like, um in this room, we'd probably say the Buddha image is more significant than the um, wall-to-wall carpeting. But when you get into everything is sacred, it's a little bit different. It's more like the thing, everything you're seeing could be sacred. And also, it reminds me a little of that, that cleaning up uh, Japanese person, Marie Kondo. One of the things I like about her books is that she sounds like the things that are around you, like your clothes and your suit, your furniture are like your companions, almost like living things. Yeah. So it reminded me of that. Yeah, yeah beautiful. Thank you. So I, I, you think it's a good thing to keep going as a kind of as a mantra? Well, I think so. And I, yeah. and, and I think that, you know, um, and maybe this is a good place to end. Yeah. But, you know, and, 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 but it's this, um, it's, it's a corrective to, as you're saying, this kind of discriminating mind that says, this is important and this is unimportant, you know, and we do that, and we need to do that in our life, but that's just one side of things, and the other side, like you're saying, is everything is equal, everything is equally, you know, expressing the Dharma, we could say, and what would it be like to bring that to ourselves, and so it's not just like, um, being with the breath is sacred and, you know, having a calm period of meditation is sacred, but it's, um, you know, 
whatever manifestation this body and mind and heart is going through is sacred, is, 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 is expressing our nature and is worthy of being, of, of being seen, being met with. So, yeah, thank you. Okay, so it's 5.04. Thank you very much, everyone. And we have maybe one quick announcement. Or Yeah, are there, are there some people who might be able to stay a few minutes and help just straighten up and organize a little bit? Yeah, great, great. Thank you. Thank you very much.